Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in again, if it is again, and if it's for the first time, welcome. And even more thanks for tuning in. Also, while we're in this mode or mood, thank you all those who tuned in to the live King's Place stream. Uh, which took place uh, last Monday at 7 o'clock, or watched a subsequent recording. I should have done it in the hall as well. I kind of misread Tier 2. I was out of London when it was announced London was going to be in Tier 2, and I thought I'd better not, better not do this thing live in King's Place. Completely misunderstood the uh, constraints about to be comp- uh, imposed somewhat confusingly. So anyway, next time, I'll do it in um, King's Place if we're still in this tier two, this sort of mid-Europa League type tier of um, the three tiers that are in place at the moment in England. Oh yeah, by the way, the audience that evening, the streamed audience, the prediction I asked them to make was would there be a full lockdown before Christmas? And a majority predicted that there would be. Well, it's sort of happening by stealth, really, I suppose, you know, with Wales in lockdown. That had been announced a couple of hours before the show, the live stream show. And then we've got others in tier three, you know, in the sort of top league, none of this Europa nonsense. So perhaps by stealth, it's happening anyway. The case for a national lockdown was made, I thought, quite effectively the so-called euphemistically called circuit lockdown by a sage person who said better to be done in September but if not September better to be done now than later. So anyway that was the prediction. So if it's okay with you for today I'm going to reflect a little on some of the themes whirling around us, COVID related themes, leadership related themes. Then we've got some brilliant questions from you to come. And if you want to ask questions, please email me. I'll be giving the email address again at the end of the podcast for you to take notes as we've kind of firmly established now most of you listen to the podcast while running 5k 10k or doing 150 press-ups so there's no point in me reading the email address out quite yet because you know I mean you're you're all going to be so contorted at the moment you won't have uh, time to do that but I will read it out at the end and then please raise points ask questions on anything I'm really interested in um, something that I read on Sunday. It was an article by Bernard Jenkin, the Tory MP, quite a senior Tory MP, Brexiteer, talks uh, nonsense on Brexit. But it was a really good article. By the way, his father was uh, Patrick Jenkin. He was a famous cabinet minister in the 70s who, during the three-day week, you know, when people were plunged into darkness on a regular basis. He became famous for telling people to brush their teeth in the dark, which generated a whole kind of genre of lyrics and literature. He was around for a long time. But anyway, that's a little aside. Bernard Jenkin has written an article for the Sunday Telegraph. Now, I doubt if many of you by the Sunday Telegraph. So I thought I'd read it to you because one of the themes of this podcast, as regular listeners will know, is 
One of the big problems, in my view, with the United Kingdom is the fracturing of responsibilities, the blurred lines of accountability in the delivery of public services. It has become a fetish, began post-79, accelerated under New Labour, intensified to bonkers levels during the coalition, and continues now. It's very odd because in number 10, the instinct is for control freakery. And then through this fracturing, they lose all control. And Bernard Jenkin in this article has done a good analysis of why test and trace has been such a flop, you know, this well-beating, well-beating test system. Even Johnson now admits, I think he's said, could do better, could do better. From well-beating to could do better in a couple of months is um, a familiar trajectory with Johnson and delivery and language. But anyway, I'm going to read just a little section of it because it sums up why it has been such a flop. And remember that Bernard Jenkin, a Tory MP of... Uh, did he vote for Johnson? I think he probably did. I can't remember. But anyway, this is what he says. It's not hard to find people in the many organisations involved in NHS test and trace. Note already, I'm doing this like a literary analysis of Proust, the many organisations involved in the test and trace. That's, that's a kind of observation with a criticism behind it. Who can explain why public consent and cooperation is breaking down. People are contacted from a 0300 number, 0300 number, and think it's just another scam call. There's no easy mechanism for those contacted to call back. Vital information, like preferred language, is not systematically recorded. The same basic questions are asked on repeated calls. Call recipients don't feel they're being listened to. There are four IT systems, he names them, Synergy, CTAS, CSGSS and HP Zone. They're not well integrated, so data is lost as cases and contacts are transferred between them. Local authorities, which pick up what national operations have missed, are under-resourced. Some send people knocking on doors if phone calls are ignored, but most don't have the resources to do so. Local public health knowledge and capacity are underused. Communicable disease control consultants were trained in reforms that followed the Stanley Royd Hospital Salmonella outbreak in 1984. The successful Dutch public health system uses a single, slimmed-down version of HP Zone. These lessons seem to have been forgotten or ignored. Now he goes on, but that sums up the chaos very neatly. Four IT systems, many, many organisations involved in the whole test and trace procedure, and so on. No clear lines of command and control, fractured IT systems doing different things in different places, chaotic data, the whole lot. And in a way, it's a mirror image of some of the things I've talked about before and, and you've raised as well about, you know, under the coalition, the creation of all these agencies, NHS England, Public Health England, uh, and many others. And it's interesting, again, with this government, 
that the control freakery in number 10 is notorious. I mean, no special advisor or minister dares to have breakfast without consulting Dominic Cummings. And they, too, in number 10, want to pull levers and for things to happen. And yet, out of incompetence, out of an inability to understand how government works, the number 10 is a group of, on the whole, vote-leave campaigners. They have no interest in the hard grind of governing and government. And if they do, it is for the glamour of sweeping reform, like Cummings' vision for a new civil service, for example. Some of which, incidentally, is based on absolutely accurate insights about the current civil service. But the hard grind of delivery involves an awareness of how government works at the moment, what can be done realistically in the middle of pandemic to change that, and so on. But instead, as I say, through incompetence and also through ideology, a mistrust of any agency in local government, a mistrust of any government department to wield power effectively. So they opt for chaos, doling out contracts to friends in the private sector, appointing a Tory peer, Dido Harding, to run this test and trace experiment in a way that has clearly overwhelmed her, ignoring calls from across the political spectrum, William Hague, Jeremy Hunt, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, to pick a big cabinet figure to run a vital department devoted solely to testing. And this is the chaos that results. And the only purpose of a national lockdown, a circuit lockdown, would be to really boost test and trace. But clearly that won't happen with this fractured chaos and this incompetent or overwhelmed, some say she's incompetent, some say she's not, but she's clearly overwhelmed, this uh, Harding Tory peer, you'd put in a big cabinet minister, wholly accountable, giving daily news conferences of how they were building up the testing and tracing as the virus fleetingly was under control during a national lockdown. But that's not going to happen. And it is, again, so interesting that a government that has come to realise that the reforms of the NHS, which were introduced by the Cameron coalition government, has led to chaos and blurred lines of accountability. Matt Hancock called it the atomization of the health service, which hasn't worked. And Jeremy Hunt came to realise that what was needed was more central control and clear lines of accountability. But having realised that, once again, they repeat the mistakes of the past, even when they have come to recognise them as mistakes, and opted for a chaotic, fractured test and trace system, and now they face the consequences. That suspicion of localism, of course, manifested itself also in that classic conflict between Andy Burnham speaking for Greater Manchester and number 10, in the end, refusing to concede ground when it came to five million quid, which is about a halfpenny in the COVID era where money has become almost a kind of existential concept or even more of an existential concept than normal. And 
what happened was very interesting and shows how sporadic and incoherent devolution is in the United Kingdom because Burnham was speaking as a voice for the North, that's how it became, although of course it wasn't the whole of the North, other bits did agree to various deals to go into tier three with the government, but it was a potent Shakespearean juxtaposition of Johnson versus Burnham and Burnham's outrage on the steps as he expressed his shock and dismay at the betrayal of his people, in inverted commas. And it raises a sort of interesting question. Given the importance of the north of England, famously to this particular government, with its red wall seats basically forming its majority, why did the government act in the way it did? And I think the answers are fascinating. Remember, Johnson's only real position of power before he became Prime Minister was Mayor of London. He didn't have much power because the mayors don't in the United Kingdom. But he had some. And yet, there he is in number 10 with a bunch of control freaks, uneasy about these voices from outside his cocooned world asserting themselves, not least a Labour mayor Andy Burnham. So it is an unease about localism. Many people at Westminster on all sides, both sides, three sides, four sides, are localists in theory, but never in practice when they get into power. And localism is often substitute for deep thought through policies. I remember Chukarumana, who was an empty vessel in terms of policy advocating localism but he hadn't really thought through much beyond that and Johnson who did fight for decent budgets in London as mayor of London has become resistant to localism as he seeks to control yes chaos with his test and trace but that's not because he was giving power to local government it was the opposite he was resisting local government having a role in test and trace he wanted it centrally controlled and then to authorize the chaotic fracturing that has come to embody the uk or england's world-beating test and trace system it's partly that it's also i was having a chat with a columnist about this at the weekend you know, why, she was asking, even if, you know, they don't trust local government, they don't like Andy Burnham, they want to assert themselves in terms of protecting money, even though, as I say, it was in the end about £5 million they were debating. So why do it? Why be so provocative? And frankly, the answer can only be that these people in number 10, Johnson, Cummings and others, aren't as brilliant as many assume they must be. When you look back, the reputation of Johnson as a vote winner, Cummings as a genius in terms of strategy, it's largely based on the referendum in 2016. Of course, Johnson won in London, and that did show he had an appeal that went beyond orthodox conservatism because he was winning in a Labour city. But the referendum was what really mythologised both Johnson, Cummings and the vote leave entourage 
as the great visionary strategists of our era. I think all of that is nonsense. I think that the moment Cameron called that referendum, it was going to go one way. That, although the polls didn't suggest this right away, Cameron was offering an electorate increasingly disillusioned with politics, with Westminster, with Europe in inverted commas, was going to use it to kick the whole lot. And so, in my view, the referendum was lost when it was called. If there had been no campaign, I still think Brexit would have carried the day. After all, it was the consequence of many years of propaganda being pumped out day after day by newspapers and others that had created this whole paranoia about the European Union and its intentions. So given that, the stuff in the campaign, you know, the stuff about all the money the NHS would get, even those slogans about take back control, which were powerful slogans, but had little to do with the European Union. I think they were incidental that Brexit was always going to be chosen if a referendum was granted. The mistake was to call a referendum, at which point you trigger the most simplistic debate possible, and one in which the more populist slogans, not because the people espousing them were geniuses, they just were had the more populist language, was always going to win. And then if you look at the 2019 election, this huge majority, it was down much more to the folly of the Lib Dems, the Labour Party, or the elements of it both, that um, accepted Johnson's demand for an election on the date he sought, when he was still in his prime ministerial honeymoon phase. That was a catastrophic error as some recognised at the time and urged these parties not to walk towards their doom voluntarily. And that election, with Brexit unresolved, and with Johnson facing in England, Jeremy Corbyn fighting a second election as leader of the opposition, always catastrophic. People are fed up with leaders campaigning again in an election when they didn't win the first one and other weak opponents. It's not that surprising. You don't have to have been geniuses to have won that. And therefore, there they are now in government, as I say, largely campaigning and trying to apply campaigning skills to government. And these people who were never geniuses in the first place are being overwhelmed. They've got to think about so many different things, Brexit, all elements of COVID, not just the battles with Manchester and others. And they are A, overwhelmed, and B, not that good, and C, have little time to reflect. And the combination means that, you know, once again, they find themselves up against Marcus Rashford, this footballer tweeting elegantly, and up against all kinds of people and institutions wondering what kind of government this is and whether the Tory party is becoming the nasty party again. They could have stopped it by giving again about 5p in COVID money to address the Rashford cause and they chose not to. Not because they're brilliant but because they're not 
I think they are bewildered, overwhelmed. They still sometimes have an arrogant swagger about them, but it's increasingly at odds, that swagger, with the external realities, the genuinely nightmarish challenges, the genuine capacity to screw up in the face of these nightmarish challenges. So I think perhaps it's because they're not very good that these kind of contrived rows that could so easily be avoided are had because they're going to blow much more money without people quite recognizing what they're doing while saving a few pennies to generate an impression of callousness that they could do without. So there we are. God, COVID is throwing up so many different issues about the way we are governed, not just by this lot in number 10, the Vote Leave campaign, but this devolution pattern, which is so incredibly interesting and messy. And actually, I'm now going to turn to some questions. And the first question relates to this. It's from Gareth Curzon. He's been talking about this in Britain, but England particularly. Will effective devolution ever be achieved without the granting of wider tax-raising powers along the lines of European cities? For instance, I think Madrid raises locally on property, income, business, vehicles and alcohol, among others. Can you see that happening with this government? What about if there's a change? Now, this is interesting because it is true that while there are now mayors in London, Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, their powers are quite limited. I think the London model works well. I mean, they, they need more powers, but it works pretty well. And the classic example of that is transport. It's easy to forget. Before 1997, transport in London was a form of hell. If you book tickets for the theatre in the mid-1990s, they would phone up and say, look, do leave early because too many people are arriving late because they are underestimating how long it will take because public transport was such a mess. And the introduction of the mayor and transport for London working kind of with and for the mayor and under the mayor meant there were absolute clear lines of accountability one elected person really was responsible for the quality of public transport, the levels of fares to be charged, and that led to an unbelievable speedy improvement in the quality of transport. Ken Livingstone, who was a brilliantly innovative London mayor, the first one of course, introduced the congestion charge that raised money spent mainly on buses he got the uh, oyster card up and running so getting on to up the underground was much quicker and smoother there were more tubes and if there weren't the mayor would be in trouble and might not be elected there are very few other examples in britain of such clear lines of responsibility and accountability Elsewhere, as Gareth suggests in his question, it's not as clear-cut as that. And it is, was interesting, the dynamic. I know Andy Burnham was the hero in that dynamic and Johnson the villain. But it is the case that really his power in that dynamic, Andy Burnham's, or his accountability, 
was pretty limited. He was asking for the money. If he didn't get it, the government would be blamed. And if he got it, it would be fairly limited amounts anyway and would be allocated specifically in the context of government directions about the implications for Tier 3 and who needed compensated. So he was putting a case. He was the voice for Greater Manchester, but he didn't have much power or responsibility. He wants more. And a good model, I think, would be the London Mayor and Transport for London. It's harder because, for example, the train services are rubbish between, say, Manchester and Liverpool and Liverpool and Leeds. So, you know, how do you get one mayor and one transport entity accountable and responsible for sorting those kinds of things out but that is a model but you're right in Europe there's much more of a culture of clear lines of a local accountability and that does tend to lead I think to better services and the mess we've got at the moment is you know so so in Wales you've got the national lockdown fair enough there's a good strong argument for that in Scotland, you've got a different set of arrangements. In England, you've got these tiers. And the lines of accountability are not always entirely clear. Who is responsible for what? It was very interesting, that dance with Burnham. That in the end, Johnson said, well, he can, we'll talk for a bit, but then we will impose our will. So central government in England, anyway, is still dominant. And the devolution model has led to these calls for independence. I think I think Gareth asks, in 2024, will things change? Well, I've heard Keir Starmer talk about this. I'm pretty sure Labour will go into that election if there hasn't been a referendum already on independence. And if there has been before 2024, it looks as if Scotland would vote for independence. He would be advocating a, a more federal arrangement with more powers devolved, but within the United kingdom the sort of genies out of the box you know say people talked in general terms about localism but this now has to be thought through much more clearly and as ever go back to that test and trace nonsense clear lines of responsibility and accountability determine partly the quality of what follows Ah, one from Richard, who says, oh, we love the podcast. Thank you very much, Richard. Quite a few of you say that in these emails. I'm too polite to, to read that element of it out. Uh, oh, a bit of Brexit. I wasn't going to mention Brexit. But if there is a no-deal scenario on the 1st of January 2021, with all the dreadful consequences that would entail, is there a possibility that very quickly Johnson and his cronies will be back at the negotiating with the EU within days? Or will they brazen it out? Rick, I think, it's not Richard is the email, it's Rick, Rick Frame. First of all, and who knows, by the time you're listening to this, or some of you are listening to it, this might be clearer, there will be, I think, a deal of some sort. It, as discussed last week or the week before, it will be a crap deal. There will be huge implications, all of them negative, as far as I can tell, for many companies and all of us preparing for the new arrangement. But it will be a deal which is much better. I mean, a bad deal is much better than no deal to reverse one of Theresa May's uh, familiar slogans. Um, what's happened to her? Ah, oh, yeah, she's become a rebel. She's become a dissenter like Philip Hammond, who became our Che Guevara in his insurrectionary phase. Theresa May, yeah. Anyway, 
but it would be a bad deal. And will they brazen out the consequences? I think it's a good point. One way or another, negotiations will have to continue. Johnson in his machismo said, All right, over, end deadline, January 1st, that's it. But in reality, so much has yet to be fully resolved in these silly talks on Zoom between David Frost and Michel Barnier and others that there will, one way or another, be negotiations ongoing in the context of a flimsy deal. So, yeah, that's what I think will probably happen. Ah, yeah, one from Joanna Latter about something I was talking about, Marcus Rushford. It's usually the opposition which holds the government to account, but recently it seems to be Marcus Rashford, a remarkable young man, Joanna notes. He is, he is. It's an extraordinary and dignified campaign of his. He didn't have to do it. He could just spend his money, but he's, he, he's utterly committed. How damaging do you think this refusal to fund free school meals will be for the government? as many local restaurants are stepping in to help and stating that they're doing so because of the government's refusal to help. How does this fit in with the so-called levelling up agenda? And if they don't do another U-turn and provide free meals over the Christmas holiday, could this backfire? Well, I think it is already backfiring. We've had more Tory MPs at the weekend coming out and saying, look, we've got to do this. And you have Tory councils, in some cases, offering to do this. It's interesting, when Tory councils, as, by the way, they were doing partly over this issue of how much money should go to Greater Manchester and elsewhere, when they are in revolt against a Tory government, it's a sign of real trouble. I am old enough, many of you will be far too young to remember, but in the mid, in, for, well, it was 88, 89 period, when the Tory government introduced a poll tax, one of the most fascinating things, this was a local tax, Thatcher's flagship in her third term, was going to meetings where the poor old Environment Secretary Chris Patton and his local government minister David Hunt had to address Tory councillors about it. And I remember them saying to me as they walked towards the entrance to the hall where they were speaking, we're into the lion's den. And they came out an hour later looking absolutely knackered and beaten up by Tory local councillors, usually the most loyal band of followers. And so if there are tensions being triggered by any of these issues from Rushford to um, the handing out of money to compensate for loss of business in the COVID drama, that is really, really serious for a government. It took a long time, I think, for the Tories to really regroup when they fell out with their own council base. They got rid of Thatcher in 1990. They won again in 92, but but they weren't as robust as they had been. And falling out, they're not there yet on the same scale, but there are tensions there. And of course, with the wider electorate. Now, there might well be a U-turn of some sort on this issue because it really wouldn't cost them much money. It would be embarrassing for them, but they U-turn about once every 10 minutes. So they should be able to get away with it. Anyway, it's a story that's bound to run because of the charisma and dignity of Rashford. And what I can't work out is the longer-term politics. I remember 
again, you'll all be far too young to remember, but in 1985, I think it was, there was all that Live Aid stuff with Bob Geldof, and then there were other things, big, big concerts calling for the freedom of Nelson Mandela, and, and it felt as if a tide was turning against the Thatcher government who were reluctant to spend money on aid issues, who were ambivalent at best about the Mandela situation. Then in 1987, she won a landslide and many of the people singing Feed the World with Bob Geldof then voted for the government that, that fleetingly it appeared these other movements were sort of challenging implicitly. So who knows? Anyway, the election is a long way away. Question here from Kevin Collins. This is interesting. There have been a few media questions. Kevin asks, I cannot help noticing the number of times, and they seem to have increased in frequency, we have had unattributable comments contained in reports from media outlets, especially the BBC, but not just then, since the Johnson administration ascended to be in power. A senior government source, a number 10 spokesman, etc., is it time to abandon the lobby journalist system, as it appears to be colluding with a lack of transparency and accountability at the heart of our government? Well, that's a big question, almost like a whole podcast question. The problem is this, that at times it benefits the reader, the listener, the viewer to have a view from within number 10. However, in order to get that view, a journalist has to repeat it without attribution. Now, the obvious problem with it is it's then very difficult for the rest of us to weigh up the significance of that view. Does it come from Cummings? In which case, it's highly significant because, as I've discussed on this podcast before, for now at least, Johnson thinks Cummings is a genius and tends to follow Cummings' advice. If it comes from a less influential source, it's less significant. And the only person who knows that is the journalist concerned. But where I think people like um, Laura Coombsberg are unfairly bashed around is that, for example, she quoted somebody defending Cummings when he did his eye test in Barney Castle, and it could well have been Cummings, and she referred to it as a government source, a number 10 source, or whatever. But that was the arrangement. She would not have got, at that point, an on-the-record quote from Cummings, even though he gave that silly press conference in the number 10 garden a couple of days later. So are we going to choose to be deprived of the information that gives a sense of the mood in number 10? Because we don't know the source of it. And on Kevin's point about has it got worse under Johnson, well, clearly Cummings' briefs favoured journalists, and some of them report it uncritically as if these are tablets of stone that we must all accept. It's quite interesting that he or one of his colleagues briefed that number 10 are very relaxed about a Biden victory in the United States. There were good reasons for the government to welcome Biden. This is, to use that old word, spin. Biden will not be good news for the bunch of vote leavers in number 10. He was a 
passionate opponent of Brexit. He was horrified at the breaking of the law, thereby threatening the whole fragile peace arrangements in Northern Ireland and elsewhere. He has regarded Johnson as a Trump-like figure. But they're briefing that because they want to be seen to be on the side of the likely winner. And they assume that Biden is the likely winner. If Trump wins, they might get it will be an awful deal because Trump's not doing it out of altruism. But there is a chance they will get a trade deal of some sort, which they could parade as an example of global Britain. With Biden, they won't. So it's spin when they say, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we can see real opportunities with a Biden presidency. And when that is reported without analysis around it, it is problematic. But this has been a common theme always. I don't think actually it's worse under this current lot. I mean, it, it might be slightly more frenzied and frantic because, as I say, they, their culture is one of campaigning, not governing. And they really see government as a continuation of the Brexit campaign in other forms. But I don't think there is a clear solution to it. It happens, look at football reporting. I mean, in a way, we know much more that goes on behind the scenes in politics than we do in a football club, where things are really hidden and only comes out when sources close to players reveal something. We never know what player it might be. Anyway, Kevin asked another good question, which we might get to next week. Let's have one more. Yeah, what's the... God, we've been going for some time. I hope you finish. You must have all finished doing a 5K run, if that's what you've been doing. 10K? I don't know. No, you'll still be going. Press-ups? I know lots of you are doing other things like looking after babies while listening to this. Anyway, uh, final question from uh, Matthew... Larum. This is quite interesting. In their party conference speeches, both Johnson and Sunak put a lot of emphasis on traditional conservative economic policy balancing the books and praising free markets. Seeing as both of them gain popularity by being seen as not a typical Tory on economics, do you think it's risky for them to be returning to traditional conservative arguments? Now, and could it alienate those newly won voters? It's interesting, those newly won voters are a motif, a light motif, aren't they? Running through a lot of political conversation and analysis. I think they are torn. Sunak and Johnson. Sunak, more clearly, he is part of, he's a sort of Osborneite economic liberal he's part of the treasury sound money culture and if he wasn't before which anyway he was he will be now because that is absolutely the culture in the treasury johnson has described himself as a rooseveltian great believer in the sort of equivalent of a new deal but is also in favor of tax cuts and everything else so he is a confused rooseveltian at best and Sunak is being forced to do all this spending because of COVID. He has no choice. The economy would collapse without it. It is interesting that in his budget, just on the edge of the COVID drama last March, was it? I think it was early March, he talked in Keynesian terms about how borrowing and spending could trigger economic growth. But, I mean, people who know him well tell me that's not really his instinct. It was the instinct at the time of some in number 10, 
But as I say, Johnson is all over the place. He can put Keynesian arguments sometimes and clearly likes the idea of spending on big projects. But he wants all the other things as well to show that, in inverted commas, the Tories are competent with money and tax cuts and won't put up taxes and won't break their pledges at the manifesto not to raise taxes on X, Y and Z. So they are both in a bind of their own confused ideological outlooks. There are both tensions between the two of them and within each of them, I think. And you are right to suggest those newly won seats are to the left economically. They might be right-wing English nationalists, social conservatives, loving the thought of being, in inverted commas, liberated from Europe. But they will want spending on those seats and are instinctive status on economic issues, so all the surveys and polls suggest. So this is a potentially combustible a combination of internal tensions within Sunak and Johnson and between them and the demands of voters in those seats who have been promised so much in that magical phrase, levelling up. Magical in it. They don't talk about redistribution. They just talk about others rising upwards to those who have already enjoyed affluence in various forms. Well, God, we've been through quite a lot. I say that there are so many kind of fascinating twists and turns in politics at the moment on a near hourly basis but each of them have deeper themes and raise deeper issues about the way we are governed and we haven't even got onto the American election but there is time next week and then we have the result and we'll have to reflect on that as well. Anyway thank you very much. I hope you've all completed your exertions and have got a pen so you can make a note of the email address if you want to raise points ask questions for next week or the week after it's steverick14 at icloud.com that's steverick s-t-e-v-e-r-i-c 1414 at com. And do keep your brilliant questions coming because they get to the heart of all the kind of things that are, you know, around at the moment in a rather brilliant way. And thank you all for listening. I've been asked to say this. I don't understand why it helps, but it helps fantastically if you can leave a review on iTunes, you know, kind of the stars. And see you all next week. Thank you very much for listening this week and enjoy yourself and keep safe.